take my agency, you can cut $20 million out of my agency. That's fine. It's going to cost you a hundred, right. you know, in one year. Now, if that's the choice you want to make, that's fine. Well, this study now gives you the ability to quantify. Firehouse Vigilance presents the Weekly Scrap, a podcast dedicated to the never-ending fight against complacency. Weekly Scrap, number 36, joined by Eric Sailors, Sacramento Fire. We've got Italian chief, researcher, writer, instructor, pilot, consultant, um, you have led a very multifaceted life, to say the least. I would say a re- Renaissance man is not a uh, wasted title. And it's my pleasure to have you on Weekly Scrap number 36. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. My pleasure. I look forward to this. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I, 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 I really do think it is. To everyone watching live, if you have questions for Eric, please do not hesitate to uh, post them. We'll get to them in the comments. Um, Chief, did I miss anything that you want to mention in the intro? No, no, we'll probably hash our way through it as we uh, as we talk about some of these subjects. Okay, perfect. Then I'm going to dive right in because I have I have really enjoyed devouring a lot of what you've written, and I, there's a lot I want to touch on. And I know if I if I don't, then I'm going to run out of time. So I want to start by saying first how much I have enjoyed uh, your articles, and not and it was important when I introduced you to call you a researcher because not just an author because these are some of the most well. Um, cited articles I've ever read. There's a lot of opinions in the fire service. There's a lot of people who will right. write, write their opinions. But when you can go on a deep rabbit hole just going through your citations and then and, and reading the stuff that you cite for your articles. And so go ahead and talk about your process and things like that. Well, you know what? I learned a lot of that at the Naval Postgraduate School. Um, that was where I did my master's. I have uh, two undergrad degrees, which are in hard science. Right. So I am that... Uh, classical quant, that mathematician. And then when I went to Naval Postgraduate School, my first paper, I got back, I got a three out of 10. And I thought I was a fairly good writer, but um, what I learned was that I was writing an op-ed and they did not want an op-ed. They wanted a well-researched paper. So they really drug me through the glass and they taught me how to research and how to pull things together and figure out what somebody else said, what I think that meant, and then what that means for the fire service in the future. Um, and that, that is what gave me the ground to start to write those, those hybrid articles. You'll come across some of the stuff I wrote where I get published in academic journals, and I learned that those aren't being read very much. Uh, but if I can do a good hybrid article where I do the research, but then wrap it into a metaphor, right. um, then it starts to catch traction, and the ideas get out there, and it, and it creates this bridge between the academic and the practitioner. And that's what we need more in the fire service, I think, for the future going forward, is we have a lot of great practitioners. um, And we have some academics out there, but the academics without the real empirical evidence and the experience, they're kind of useless. So you need this bridge to bring them together. Um, And I learned this term a few years ago, the idea of a pracademic, right? Someone who has been on a roof with a running chainsaw, right? And also someone who has read a hundred books and kind of wrapped your ideas around them so that you can bridge the gap between theory and practicality. And um, that's kind of what I've evolved into. And I'm hoping that we get more in the fire service like me. Wow. So that's where those articles come from. That, that makes complete sense because when I read your articles, they really do feel a niche that does not exist in, in, that, in that regard. And when you explain it that way, that makes complete sense why they kind of connected. And I've felt that. Um, Article, firefighters are not machines. They need sleep. So that's where I'm starting. So um, <laughs> I see you <laughs> I get a smile and a small eye roll. Uh, yeah, right. That was, a, that was um, a challenging time in my life. Uh, one of my professors uh, was Robert Zimbardo, um, the man who did the uh, Stanford Prison Experiment. Okay. And, um, you know, we had to read his book. And uh, his wife actually does all of her research on burnout. So I started researching burnout after my master's. And I came across these citations about sleep deprivation and the effect of sleep deprivation. And honestly, I couldn't believe the results that I was seeing. As I was reading it, it seemed worse than I could ever imagine. So I started digging into it more. And the more you find the empirical studies that are out there, uh, the scarier it gets. So at the time in my life, I was in charge of the 17 ambulances that are running in Sacramento. 
So I essentially work for the 68 firefighters that are on these ambulances. Uh, my job is to keep them safe. And our call volume is to the roof. Uh, our rigs will, our ambulances will usually run, you know, 6,000 calls a year. Um, it's challenging. And when I was looking at what we're doing to our people and those three main categories in that article of cancer, PTSD, and um, cardiac. And what I was having was I had two friends that had killed themselves so far in the fire service that I worked with. Uh, I just had two friends that had a massive stroke. And, you know, I was seeing burnout and PTSD rip through our agency. And what I could see was it was related back to sleep deprivation. So when I plugged that article together, it was just trying to get a foothold of what was happening to us because it made sense um, that that was the predominant thing that was affecting our health. And I'll look at it this way. So I'm a third generation firefighter. Okay. Uh, Gen one of my family was LA city from the fifties to the eighties. Gen two is my father, my aunt and both uncles. Right. So um, you can imagine what the, what the family gatherings are like. Sure. I'm talking about shop. Um, and what I recognize is that in my dad's generation, you know, they hired coaches and changed their diet and bought exercise machines and they got really physical and serious about their well-being. But cancer kept climbing and cardiac events kept climbing and PTSD actually shot through the roof. It, it was hard to reconcile. Um, so when I came across that sleep deprivation and all that research, uh, that's when I realized this is probably, you know, the correlation that I've been looking for. It's really hard to prove causation. But it made sense. Call volume was just eating us alive, and um, in my agency in particular, it's it's a challenge. So we've we've actually implemented some policies in my agency. We do a forty eight hour shift, and we run a piece of software that tracks every rig that didn't get a four hour break from the time they were cleared their last call to the time they were dispatched to the next. And if they didn't on day two, we shut them down for four oh, wow. hours. And we do what's called load management. Is we is we just cycle through the system so that we make sure we don't have any drivers that are, you know, driving a code three truck or ambulance uh, without any sleep for two days. Um, so we've had some positive impact with that article. No doubt about it. And and again, it goes back to your, like you said, the what was the practical ver and the, uh, the, the pra academic, academic. Because the, uh, the key for me was this sentence. And you said contributing to cancer, cardiac events, and PTSD, lack of sleep may be the single biggest contributing contributor to firefighter death and injury and that's just that blew my mind when i because uh, you when you you always hear about you know the cardiac events you always hear about the cancer especially recently and then ptsd like you said through the roof but when you put them all together and tie it to sleep deprivation it's it's um uh, mind-blowing and the uh like again when you tie it to the uh other part that i really got to was a single night of sleep deprivation reducing the nk cells you were talking about by 70% yeah. in that sleep study. And that was like, if that doesn't get you, then I don't know what else can. Yeah, and that study was done like 20 years ago, right out of UCI uh, by Dr. Irving. And it was, the empirical evidence was right there the entire time. Um, and that, that, that impacts us as well as going into this COVID-19 pandemic. And the fact that if you think about what we're doing to our firefighters with the call volume we're running is that we're removing their first line of defense right, by keeping them up all night long. And then we are exposing them to the chemicals and the fires and whatever diseases that are out there, uh, which explains our sick leave and uh, the fact that we're, you know, I say, you enter this profession as a young man and you leave it as an old man uh, because it can, it can really beat you up. And I think that supervision, I know we can have a positive impact on that if we start to address it and acknowledge that it's there. I had a chief that recently retired. He retired about four or five years ago. And, of course, he had all sorts of issues. He had to have heart ablations and things like that. And his doctor told him that if he would have gotten his sleep apnea addressed, that it probably would not have had a big effect. Or he might have avoided the ablations and some, you know. And he told me that. And that was the reason I went and had a sleep study done. It's the reason I'm on a CPAP now. And uh, so, anyway, it's made a major change in my life, just him saying that to me. And so I can only imagine across the board uh, how much it could affect I'm hoping in 10 years, the generation behind me will uh, wrap their hands around this problem much better, right? And they'll acknowledge it, they'll, and they'll address it head on. Uh, it's, it's not acceptable to have somebody who's been awake for two days running a chainsaw on top of a roof or, you know, driving a code three ambulance.
No, absolutely. And that's what I wanted, because I see uh, all, all the time, social media, of course, people say, hey, who, who here runs 48? And you guys run 48.96? We do, we do. Okay. This is the best schedule we can have. Um, I, I get into this uh, I get into this conversation a lot. This okay. 48.96, we actually went to it because our modified Kelly schedule, which were 24s, were killing us. And it's the balance between long-sleeve sleep deprivation and short-term sleep deprivation, Right. Um, the long term is actually harder. So it takes 96 hours to reset your circadian rhythm. So you're really not getting a good night's sleep until you're in the day four of your four day, right? And if on our modified Kelly schedule, we weren't getting a four day except for, you know, every 16 days. Um, so we traded long term for short term sleep deprivation, right? But the, the core crux of our challenge isn't the schedule. It's a 56 hour work week and the call volume. Right. We, we have to choose between one or the other. Um, if you go into the history of our agency, uh, Sacramento City is the oldest fire department west of the Mississippi. Um, right. So Sutter's Four is, is in my first inn, right, right downtown. That was the you know, first building in California. Right. Goldberg, right? um, if you think of the progression of the fire service, you know, we took on this 56-hour work week with the idea that you would have an eight-hour work day from eight in the morning until five and then, I, and then you'd be on call for the rest of the shift. That's, that's why it's called a firehouse, right? Um, so we, we accepted this 56-hour work week. We, nobody imagined that we would actually be working continuously for 24 hours, right? That, that wouldn't have been acceptable. Um, but that's where we find ourselves in now. Uh, my agency you know, runs about 100,000 calls a year. We're tracking to do about 120 a year now, which is low compared to some of the agencies that have more rigs. But per unit, it's uh, quite high. And um, in my father's generation, when I came on, it's 50,000 calls a year. Right. And in my father's generation, it's 20,000 calls a year. We haven't had any fire stations. We've just gone from 20,000 calls a year, tracking to do 120 now. Uh, so that, that's going to be our challenge for the future. Nice. Uh, what steps do you think uh, need to be taken, or try to project into the future? What, if, if you had a magic wand to make stuff happen, what would Eric Sailors do? We're going to get to, uh, we're going to, we're going to talk to one of your questions right now, right? Okay. One of your in questions is that, what do I think the, the major issue for the fire service is? Okay. Um, and it has to do with call volume. Call volume for me is a symptom of mission creep. And uh, pay attention to this wording. The definition of mission creep is when a small program is met with success and grows until it cannibalizes the original mission. Does that make sense? Small program, man with success. And that is what's causing our call volume to go through the roof. So in, in my world, EMS is cannibalizing fire suppression, right? And um, it is causing so much workload that I no longer have the opportunity to train or educate or rest or feed my firefighters, right? So um, – in the future, we're going to have to reconcile that because it feels like we're on an unsustainable uh, path. Now, the end result of mission, mission creep, and this is going to be a real unpopular topic, okay. but the, the end result is split. Um, that's ultimately what happens. If you look at the military, uh, pre-World War II, you had the introduction of aircraft, right? And aircraft fall under the Army, under Army Corps, right? 1938, Billy Mitchell says, you need to split this thing off. You cannot run the Air Force like you do the Army. But they don't listen to him. It stays under the Army. We go into World War II. We literally fly B-17s in tank formations. And you kill a lot of pilots, right? right? So 1947, you get a hard mission. You get a hard split of the agencies. Air Corps now becomes Air Force. Uh, the Army goes back to its original mission. Its original mission was land superiority. Navy is sea superiority, and now this new agency is Air Force is now air superiority. Um, and that's what the military does with mission creep. They just did it again with Space Force. They'll do it again soon with Cyber Force. Right? You have to have cyber dominance. So if you pull that analogy over into the fire service, you look at it and you recognize at some point you're going to have to split. Uh, the question is, is how many firefighters are you going to kill before you do it? Wow. Wow, and you put it that way, that's kind of heavy. So, but it's, it keeps it real, yes. No, it's, it's the reality. If you look at our stats, what's, what's the call volume is doing to us? Man, okay. So, uh, uh, yeah, 
you've written quite ex- uh, extensively on the, I, I'm kind of paraphrasing here and anything I get wrong when I paraphrase please feel free to correct so but okay. uh, firefighting is not a business it's kind of the the, the uh, right. overall uh, it's critical infrastructure yes. right and, um, and this was my my undergrads they're in business right my first bachelor's is in finance I'm that classical quant that, that financial analyst um, when you go to traditional university, you get trained through the lens of everything is a business. Everything gets optimized, right? It's not until you get out into the real world where practicality gets you, as you recognize there's actually these these two worlds running parallel, critical infrastructure and business. They're like yin and yang. You need the critical infrastructure so that the businesses can live off it and survive. But you also need the businesses to pay the taxes for the critical infrastructure, right? One can't survive without the other. Um, and the challenge is, is that although the critical infrastructure has been there since the days of agricultural dominance, it's not taught in schools. What's taught in schools is business optimization. And you have some people that make a really bad bridge of, from business optimization into critical infrastructure, right? So that article was to kind of cleave that and start by saying, stop. The fire service is not a business. It doesn't run like a business. You actually don't want it to be efficient because efficiency breeds fragility. Fragility, right. It is more like the military. It is critical infrastructure. You need it to be resilient, redundant, and robust, the three R's, right? Because it can't die. In that idea of business, if, if um, you know, when Sears goes out of business, no one will notice because there's competitors that will step in. There's competitive advantage that it's always waiting there. If your fire department falls out of business, there's no one there to step in to fill in. Right. Right? It is the only thing that exists. Um, and that is the ideas that you have to get through a lot of your mayors or city managers or council members that there are two separate worlds running. Um, it's not that not being efficient means that you waste money. That's not the case. I'm not into wasting money and I'm not into consuming more than you produce, but the lens that you look through it, it has to be resilience, redundancy, and robustness. Yes. Um, I love how you say it is easy to measure input of the fire department because there's an annual budget. So it's very easy to measure the input. It's the output that's so difficult to measure. And uh, we're a response model, like you said, and we can't be based off of efficiency. Efficiency is good, but we can't be built off of efficiency because that breeds fragility. That breeds fragility, right? When you wrap that in your head, um, and this this ultimately topic was my master's thesis, right? Uh, okay. I'll call it eight years of research as, as I dug into this problem. And I'll, I'll jump to the conclusion is the greatest value that the fire service provides to its community is the thing that didn't happen we intervene in a chain of events to stop the next. Now, some people will say, they'll use the metaphor that we're like an insurance policy. I really dislike that because an insurance policy shows up when the event is over. We actually inject ourselves at our own peril into that chain of events to stop the next thing from not happening, right? I say we're more like an airbag in a car. You know, you, you've been in an accident and we deploy and stop you from your hitting your face against that. Smashing your face. Yes. Right? yes. That's what, that's what a response model does. And the challenge is, is that you somehow have to put a number on the thing that didn't happen. Right. Um, which means you have to prove the thing that didn't happen. Um, and that came out in my uh, master's thesis, which is very fortunate because it gets published, you know, it's reviewed by a physicist, a JD from Stanford, a computer scientist, this network theory economist, right? They, they, all, they all buy into the theories. I develop a type of network theory to map out how fire spreads. And then I develop a way to actually put dollar amounts on homes and businesses so that in the end you can say, yeah, look, one hour's worth of work, this was a $5 million fire. What we saved was $5 million that was at risk, right? And it's, it's uh, scientifically validated, it's reproducible, it gives you a good number and it allows you to start put output on the fire service in a very specific domain of commercial and residential fires. Um, but that, you know, that's just one piece of the pie to challenge what actually the fire service puts out. 
And and so I I, I love the idea that we could actually um, quantify the output. You know what I'm saying? And actually have a standardized way of doing so. But do you think we'll ever get there to a point where the guy whose um, gap force set is his tool set and he's able to, to apply these equations in some way, shape, or form to get to that point? Or I, I'm trying to get it where different departments can quantify and actually compare. It's, not, it's, actually, it's actually happening. Um, so that was published in 2015. Probably the greatest success story are these two agencies that live side by side. They're, they're twin cities. Uh, they're smaller rural cities. One is staffed, same number of stations, same square footage, uh, but one staffed with three O on each piece of equipment, you know, a captain, an engineer, and a firefighter, and the other staff with two O, just a captain and an engineer, right? Okay. Same number of stations, same square miles, about the same call volume. Well, they ran these studies to see what is the impact of three people on an engine versus two quantifying the value of their fire. Uh, in the end, there was a millions of dollars of difference between the two agencies. And it allowed the city that was running with 3 to go to the city manager and say, this is why we are staffed the way we are, because we actually saved you $16 million more than the agency next door. When we have an apartment fire, it's a room and contents. When they have an apartment fire, it's the entire structure because they're not able to contain it in that original unit of origin, right? And um, this equation actually allows you to do a return on investment for your fire department in the budget, right? And uh, the return on investment uh, for my agency when I did this study in 2015 was 2,200%. The return on investment for those two smaller agencies was 260% versus 120%. So even the 2.0 was still was still banging it out of the park of 120%. Sure. You could see the value. It's actually cheaper to hire that third firefighter than it is not. To. No, and that's something that just—it's just—it's so hard to express when all the the city manager, the city council looks at is the budget as opposed to how much the fire department is actually. It's a different cost metric. My Mark alone has uh, put a comment in here. Our bottom line is loss prevention, a completely different uh, cost metric. So that's impressive. I got a. You also talk about efficient systems are fragile and response models have to be resilient to absorb shock. I had to write down your three R's, the resilient, robust, resilient, and redundant. redundancy and, and robustness, right? Yes. Uh, the res resilience is your ability to bounce back. So with the acknowledgement, you're going to take a hit. You're going to get knocked down. But how quickly do you get back up? That's resilience, right? Robustness is uh, how well do you resist change? How hard can you get pushed on before you fall over, right? And redundancy is that subsystem that steps in to fill in. And you think about these, these are words that we know intuitively. We use them every day in the fire service, even in the idea of a two outline, right? That is redundancy. That is a subsystem in place there to fill in if the first system fails, right? Same with a RIT team, right? right? That is resiliency. That is the ability to recover from a massive hit and get back on your feet, right? All of our turnouts, all of our structures, all the stuff we put on ourselves for the last 20 years, that is robustness. That is the ability to resist change and take a ton of, a ton of heat and beat, oh, yeah. right? And those three R's, that I'll say that what I do Mostly is I take ideas that you know intuitively in your head and I put words to them, right? Words that are researched typically out of DHS for some science that actually defines them exactly. You already know what they are. I just I just label them for you so that you could use them in a conversation with someone who has an MBA that is business trained that has no idea what critical infrastructure is and has a really hard time of understanding why you're standing on a roof. Right. So, no, I love that. I, I, I'm fascinated by the idea of figuring out the return on investment of our department and, and being able to quantify that and present it. That, I, so I'm going to uh, get more information from you on it and the, the studies. There's, a, there's another article out there uh, I didn't send you. It's called The Value of Each Additional Firefighter. So in that study between those two agencies, uh, this, this, is, this, is a, this is a pretty far extrapolation, but I wanted to see where it went. Uh, what was the value of that third firefighter? It was six hundred thousand dollars a year, so the cost of the firefighter was about one hundred and fifty. And when I say costing, the you know that's a retirement and all the benefits and their salary. Sure. But 
the return on investment was $600,000 a year, right? The difference that single firefighter made between those two agencies uh, was a massive positive. And I I love that number because you can't can't fight it, you can't argue back on it. It is just one study, right? But it does stake a ground, you know, puts a stake in the ground and says, this is it, this is where we're starting. Well, that's awesome. Uh, You also talk about there's a reason most businesses don't last longer than 10 years. And then you reference like the FDNY and how long they've been around. And and I love that analogy. Some of your analogies are awesome, so I have to keep bringing them up. But it's it, it's a fact. Businesses are efficient. They're built for efficiency, which makes them fragile. I've, I've been in business. Um, competitive advantage causes you to stretch the rubber band as far as you can, right? You need to get out ahead as far as you can with every inch of effort you have but any shock to the system you unravel and you accept that you go well you know what this is my exit plan if this if this works it's going to be great if it doesn't work hey you know we're going to go back you don't do that in critical infrastructure and one of my analogies is rock climbing I used to be a big rock climber and if i wanted to climb with the most efficient rope possible I would climb with a rope that only carried 220 pounds. Right. I would remove strands, right? I would, no, we don't need this strand. How much will it take? It'll take 220 pounds. It's exactly what it's going to hold. But nobody would climb with that rope because that would be insanity, yeah. right? Right. You with a piece of twine, right? You, you climb with a rope that is resilient. It bounces back, right? It is incredibly robust. And if you're doing like a special rescue, you throw in redundancy because yeah. you've got a safety line, right? Right, And that, that is the idea you have to get to there's between business and critical infrastructure. When, and I think in that, in that article, I'll talk about Lehman Brothers, right? Lehman Brothers yeah. goes away after almost 200 years. Oh, it's gone because you've got so many other banks that fill in, right? I mean, you almost don't even miss a beat. To me, in the finance world, it's an amazing shock. But there it goes. Whereas FDNY, they can't go away. Right. They're the only thing there, right? They have to continue to fight. Um, and there is something that I, I haven't uh, put in any of my articles yet. It's it's going into one I have in draft now. Is okay. this, this idea that businesses get to choose their problems, and that's the big difference between us and the them and the fire service, right? Is that they choose whether they're going to produce this phone. And if they don't want to anymore, they stop and they move, they pivot whenever they want. They well, choose their problems, right? Does that make sense? Oh yeah, that's nice. That's a that's we don't choose our problems. Right. We get given to them. Right. Here is your problem, solve Go, this. go, go fix go, this. Go fix it. It'd be, it'd be like rolling up on a three-story Victorian with smoke pumping out of the eaves and going, no, 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 no. Uh, I want to fight the single story residential next door. You know, can we do that? Let's pivot to that. That looks easier. We don't get to do that, right? You have to fight that Victoria. You have to take on that taxpayer, right? That hazmat is yours. It doesn't matter how tough it is. And that is the difference between critical infrastructure and business. They choose their problem. They can walk away. We cannot. Right. And that is a different mindset. I'm looking forward to that article now. I'm pumped about that one. So, uh, my next question is: We're on quantifying the negative, which I think you've proving the value of the fire service. I love that. Uh, what are the major obstacles do you feel towards quantifying the negative? Is it uh, in your mind getting to that point where that this can become a standard, almost like a like I like to see it like a niffers almost, where every uh, every time you get back to the station, you're typing it up. It's it's possible. Um, it has some pros and it has some cons. Um, the cons are is that it's very narrowly scoped to what is published. The science that is there is very narrowly scoped to urban firefighting. Okay. Right? And, and specifically commercial buildings, even though now it's been published and bridged to do residential buildings. Uh, and it also leaves a lot out, which is one of its strengths. It's incredibly conservative. I have not found a way to uh, quantify contents. Now, you can put a number on context, but when I say quantify that is validated and reproducible, I need a process that is so solid that it'll make it through academic rigor. I haven't been able to do it for content. So they just get, they just get dotted up, right? All I've got is the 
uh, reproduce the uh, replication cost of the structure and then the impact to the business, right? And I also haven't built life in there either. Right. Uh, I own a life, you know, you can use eight to $9 million depending on what resource you want to use that's out there. Um, so those are some of the downfalls. Uh, the upsides are is that uh, the process is pretty easy and the math is not that hard. Um, I purposely washed out any form of probability or calculus. If you, you tell from my articles, I, I'm not unfamiliar with probability. Like the, the right. math is right in my wheelhouse for probability. <laughs> I kicked all that out because it's all useless. I, I basically just developed network theory uh, to do that. And um, you have some agencies that are using it pretty consistently. And a lot of times it's been done by one person. Wow. One person is just reviewing every fire and quantifying the numbers. Um, the, I think the challenge for uh, having it go national in the last few years is that economically the country has been doing fairly well. So there hasn't been much of a need for it. Um, uh, that may change in the future. And if we go back to 2008, when we start taking 20 to 50% budget cuts, sure. uh, come another hot topic because you're going to get, you're going to get in these discussions where you're going to have to really show what your worth is and what the consequences are of cutting half your budget. You know, in this conversation, we'll take my agency. You can cut $20 million out of my agency. That's fine. It's going to cost you a hundred. Right. You know, in one year. Now, if that's the choice you want to make, that's fine. Well, this study now gives you the ability to quantify. To quantify. Yeah. So this, this, what am I trying? Necessity becomes the the uh, mother of implementation. That is exactly right. That is exactly right. I I, I will I, I say necessity is the mother of innovation. Okay. There we go. And I, and I started this idea, this research in 2008, which is was right in our recession. We were getting, you know, we got we got cut pretty deep as most agencies did. That's why I call it the eight-year research project. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because it took me that long to find the pieces of the puzzle that would fit, that would get past, uh, you know, a JD and a physicist and an economist and a network theory guy. Um, no, and it actually addressed some of my questions. When I sit here and I, I was reading and, and, and thinking, I'm like, what keeps the guy from just saying, well, that house was worth this much and the contents this much, you know, and just inflating the numbers to, you know, but you've already basically addressed that by saying... It's not even counted. These are very conservative numbers. Right, right. Here's the process. Here's the software you use. That software will kick out a validated reproducible number, right? And reproducible is key is that if I show up out of the blue and run the same problem, I'll get the same answer, right? Right. And that That's key. And that that's what prevents the person from looking at the bill. He's like, well, this is an $8 million bill. Right. Um, which was one of the issues I came, I came across. My, uh, my aunt retired out as an arson investigator, and when I was looking at some of the buildings that, you know, you're required to put in a value of the structure. For right. right, no, yeah. yeah. And, you know, so I started asking her, I said, well, how did you come across this number? She goes, well, I asked. I said, well, did you get any training? You know, I was fairly naive oh, at the time. Yeah. You get any training? She's like, no. So, well, did you use market value? Well, kind of. But market value is an actually a terrible idea in the end. So I realized that, wow, our data across the board sucks. And if your data sucks, it's hard to make solid conclusions, right? There's no doubt. Yeah, so that the process of quantifying the negative actually washes that out and it gives you a solid anchor to stand on. And it will be producible. Someone won't come in and say, hey, well, how did you get this number? Well, let me show you. I'll show you exactly what I use. Right. Exactly what it is. And uh, it's now your job to counter argument. No, oh, I put the Otis on them. That's awesome, man. I, uh... Uh, the, the the final article I wanted to talk to you about today, because, I mean, this is so much fun. I'm going to have you back. I hope you will come back. But command, not control, the fourth generation yeah. of firefighting, man. And you start with Gen 1, and I'm just going to give a quick rundown. Uh, Gen 1, and this is my notes. Again, clarify at any point. But basically, it was initiative-driven. You know, Gen 2, initiative balanced with obedience. The gen, again, I'm, I'm taking the, the points that I took out of it. Gen 3, yeah. obedience-dominated. The command and control, and then finally Gen Four is what the gist of the article about is, where initiative comes roaring back to the front. So you get balance between initiative and obedience, right? And that's why I call it command, uh, not control, um, because one person can't control the entire scene. It's the fog of war, right? Right. Um, 
and it's the uh, realization, as, as I tell my the captains that I work for, I say, uh, look, no BC has ever put out a fire, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> it's, it's typically the person on the nozzle that puts out the fire, and it's the captains that facilitate that direction, right? My job is to not miss the forest for the trees, to back up and see the overall scene, and then I will give you commands in that direction, but really the tasks and tactics, that's you. I can't control that, right? I can say, here is your objective. I need a primary on the second floor. I can't tell you how to do that. Right, but oh, that's awesome. We tried in Gen 3. Um, so as I, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to live through Gen 2, 3, and 4, right? I'm now in, I'm now in Gen 4. Uh, Gen 2 was amazing. Um, it, it was fast paced, but it was, there was small team coordinations, but not big team coordinations. Right. You know, this is, this is in the era when there was one radio per crew. Sure. So, you know, you, you just went at it and you showed up. I, I remember showing up on uh, what is, what is truck 20 in, in my role as a young firefighter and just going at it. Like what needs to be done? Let's go do it. <laughs> right. And what's that guy over there doing? I don't know, but we're doing this. Right. And we, we got it done, but, uh, Gen 3 really kind of clamped that down and had some benefits, but had some unintended consequences too. When you have crews that show up and are locked into obedience and can't take initiative, right, and are waiting for an assignment um, when things do need to be done, it slows things down, it slows your auto loop down, right? You just can't manage them that So Gen 4 is where most agencies are now, where it's that balance. Um, and uh, I will say that uh, Gen 3 is actually a really dangerous space to be in um, because you start scripting calls. Mm-hmm. And I'll talk about that in the article. I saw that a lot early on in my career as a young captain. Um, you were more concerned about how you sound on the radio than what was actually happening on the scene. So you would become disconnected from the true incident uh, because you needed to sound good and you needed to script it very cleanly, right? Right, on the SOP, yeah. Yes, and you, you know, you, you call them checkbox captains or checkbox PCs, and they, you would hear them on the radio talking about this call that they were on, but it had nothing to do with the fire. <laughs> with with the fire they were in front of them, right? <laughs> you know, and, you, and they would they would be assigning rigs out before they even got on scene. You know, you know, they rig would be five minutes. We'd be like, no, truck twenty, you're going to be ripped. You're like, well, we'll wait and see what happens in ten minutes, right? Um, so, so Gen Three is a really dangerous spot to be in because you try to take the entire incident and funnel it through one person. And that one person then tries to be the answer for every problem, and it's not physically possible. Right. Um, so Gen Four is where you want to be. You know, I love that the uh, decentralized decision making. Like you said, uh, I think uh, Gen Two has almost had decentralized decision making because there was no other option. You know, it wasn't. right? Yeah. And now we're getting yeah. back to that. Just here's here's what I want you to accomplish. Now, I, how you accomplish it? Hey, figure it out. This, this is my yeah. And uh, like you said, the faster OODA loops. Uh, is, does it really all come down to empowerment and trust? It really does. And, um, you know, I'd say most failures are a failure in planning, which comes to your training and what your crews know what they need to do. And when the fire starts, it's a race of momentum. The momentum of the fire versus the momentum of your crews, right? It is a race of speed. And if you have to wait and get trained and educated during the fire on what needs to happen, you're going to lose momentum. Momentum, yes. And you will put yourself in a dangerous spot. But if you are trained and coordinated and you know what needs to happen and you have the empowerment to take initiative when the conditions change, then you will stay out of harm's way, right? And you will be prepared for that big event opposed to simply freezing and asking for an assignment when something changes. Dude, that's awesome. Dude, that's, you can preach. Um, I, I, there's a couple things I want to touch on, and I heard you say, now you are a battalion chief, correct? I am, yes. Okay, and you, you, you said something in there where you said the captains I work for. So that, yes. that, is a, that is a conscious choice to say it that way, and that is an awesome thing to hear from a battalion chief. So I wanted to commend you on that. That is amazing. And uh, uh, the other thing was, 
decentralized decision making, faster read loops, it's all about empowerment and trust. You mentioned the fifth generation of firefighting in this article. Where do you see uh, what it, what does that fifth generation look like? So we need to be cautious of the fifth generation. We want to get to the sixth generation as fast as possible. Think of these as phase shifts. Okay. Think of it going from liquid water to ice to liquid water to ice. Now I am a technology geek. Okay. And what I see coming is automatic vehicle locators, automatic personnel locators, remote cameras that feed back into one place, drones, the hardware and the software is all there. We're just waiting for the integration. My fear is, is Gen 5 will look a lot like Gen 3. Because what Gen 3 is, Gen 3 was a change in technology. It was radios that allowed the idea to say, oh, well, we can control all this, so we should. Right. Right? Right. And my fear is Gen 5 will be similar to that. It'll be a phase shift from Gen 4, which is now liquid, right? You are flowing like water. You're able to go around the big rock if it's there. Uh, Gen 5 will probably solidify. Do the best of intentions, nothing malicious. It'll just be a natural progression of, well, I can pull a video feed from every tip camera in the building and I can get an AVL of every vehicle and I can get a location of every firefighter. That means that as a VC, I should now re-inject myself back into tactics. Right, right. Which, what we forget is, is that the human mind only has 14 watts of power. It is not capable of processing that much information. It has limitations. And I learned this from the pilot realm, right? As an instrument-rated pilot, I've had an engine out at 11,500 feet, moving 200 miles an hour, having an engine go out on me. You choose consciously what you focus on and what you can. Information overload is real. And Gen 5 scares me with that potential is that you'll have a BC that has the ability to pull all this stuff in and will spend more time looking at the screen than out the window the or at the incident, right? So I'm hoping that Gen 5 will be a quick phase shift. We will we will solidify, but then Gen 6 will come along. We'll break back out of that centralized command because it's essentially what Gen 5 will be. It'll be centralized command. We'll break back out of it again. And we'll come back to decentralized command. We'll take all of that information and we'll disperse it across the network just like we do with radio traffic, right? Most of the radio traffic now is not for the BC. It's for the truck crew above you, right? It's for the crews that are behind you. That information is getting spread out, and hopefully, we'll get to Gen Six quickly. Nice. No, that's I, I love it. Um, always, I, I ask. Uh, I'm a reader. I'm an avid reader. I love reading. My book list. I'm so far behind on my reading because I do these weekly scraps, and invariably they'll suggest a book. I buy it on Amazon, and it goes in my to read pile, and it's getting bigger and bigger because I'm not fast enough. But I always ask my guests, "Do you have book or books you'd like to suggest that firefighters should read?" So you can look up, I have a reading list out there, um, and I will call this the cognitive gym because I've learned from making mistakes. Um, the, the books are ranked in difficulty and relevance to the fire service. Oh, wow. Don't start with one of the most difficult books that are out there. This is a plague on your houses. Uh, this is written by two PhDs. It is the story of New York fire and the fact that when you cut fire service out of the South Bronx in the late 60s and early 70s, you essentially caused New York to be the most dangerous city in the world in the 80s. Really? You created the color wars in LA because you cut fire service out of South Bronx. This is an amazing government grant study by two PhDs, but it's incredibly hard to read. So okay. okay. In our metaphorical world, this is a very heavy squat. Okay. Right? All right. You don't throw 450 pounds on the bar on your first day of squats. You start off at 145 and work your way up. So I love that um, analogy, by the way. It's one of my favorite <laughs> reading analogies. So that 145 squat, I say uh, I'm not a super fan of Jocko, but he does a good job with his third book, uh, Tactics and Strategies for Leadership. That's a good 145 squat. But a much more useful book as you get through that is McChrystal's Team of Teams. Okay. 
This is a great story about decentralized command, trusting your people, progressing in the right direction. It's an easy read. And what he does very good is he starts to bring in some solid scientific studies like the prisoner's dilemma, uh, the conniving framework, real things that exist out in academia. And then he bridges them down into the real world. So Team of Teams is a great book for any future leaders who are thinking about the direction of the fire service and moving from actually decentralized command and using your people to the best of their ability. Um, so like I said, that, that book list is out there. Uh, I can send you a link. Um, and it goes from a rating of one of difficulty up to a 10 out of 10, you know, which would be like a box sand pile or a plague on your houses. Wow. Okay. So I definitely want to get the reading list from you. And I'll definitely put it in the comments of where, everywhere this video goes. And because uh, I, yes, I, the, just the idea of having something where he goes, oh, Eric said this was a 10. I'm going to read this one. So. We'll yeah, yeah. I, uh, one of my one of my buddies is chief in the in the southern part of this state. He called me up the other day and he goes, "I finally finished a plague on my houses." I said, "I gave it two years ago." And he goes, "Yeah, it was the hardest book I've ever read in my life. It was, it was also the best book I ever read in my life." I said, "Yeah, you you try to do a 450 pound squat day one, and that was my mistake. I need to slowly build you up there." Um, so That's yeah, awesome. list is there. I'm currently on Diffusion of Innovations, which is it, it's it's a very very slow read for me, and it's all about implementing change. But it's it's a tough one, and uh, I've been I chip away at it, and then I go back to good you know 145s, and then I go and chip away at the 450. So I um I I teach these classes on succession planning, and um in uh in my master's degree, I had to read a book called How to Read a Book. You know, what the hell? Right. Right. So. I actually read it. I was like, oh my God, this is actually amazing. This is fantastic how to read a book. So uh, there's a moral to the story is that uh, I will say I go through about 30 books a year, but I honestly listen to them. Um, I listen to them on Audible. And that allows me to review a ton of books. And when I find a gold nugget like Team of Teams, I then go buy the hard copy. Okay, okay. I was going to ask. And then I will actually buy the Kindle version. So Team of Teams, I own three versions of. Um, because the Kindle allows me to search particular terms. So I'll be like, oh, I remember when he said something about, you know, the conniving framework. Where is that? And I'll, I'll be able to search. I'll be able to find it very quickly, cite it in a research article, and move on, right? And, and construct my foundation of research and knowledge very quickly. I like that. No, because my biggest problem with Audible is I have a hard time retaining a lot of times because I make so many notes, so many highlights and all that stuff in the book. I, I abuse books. And in fact, like your articles, you know, I have them when I was getting ready for this and just abused the highlighter getting ready. But, uh, and that's why I've always avoided Audible, but that makes complete sense. Get the, scan the book, get it the good ones. Yes. And then the Kindle. Yeah, I've avoided it for the same reason, but that makes so much sense. I love that. And then the Kindle. Yeah, I tell... I tell the people I work with, then just phase out on the audible. They're like, well, I, I lose track. I'm like, I lose track too. It's okay. Keep going. If it's a good author, it's going to repeat it all in the conclusion anyways, right? I, I'll spend uh, a lot of times in my day working on my tractors, um, you know, working out in the yard. I always have an audible book in. I'm scanning it. Sometimes I'm paying attention. Sometimes I can't hear it because the nail gun's running because I'm building something. It doesn't matter. You just keep going get to the end and then you'll say, you know what? That was a good book, but I'm, I'm done. Right. Or I'll say, you know what that was, that changed the way I view the world. I'm going to listen to that again. And then I'm going to go buy the hard copy, right? That, that was, that was adaptive enough to where it actually shifted my worldview. That baby is going on my shelf. Um, and I, I, I know I literally do 30 books a year. And I scan through them. I'm all over the place from hard sciences, computer sciences to psychology, um, you know, to things that just, you know, randomly interest me. Sure, sure. I and do. I, I, love, I, I, do. And I, and I, I have this growing library that spreads through my house behind me and upstairs. <laughs> um, but that's, that's it. Because if you stall on, on one book that isn't well written, then what you're doing is you're you're, you're spending your time that you don't have. 
Oh, uh, you, yes. And you have limited time. So you tear through it in an audible. I listened to it at 1.5. You know, I speed that baby up. It's a nine hour book. I'm through it in a lot less time. Um, and then I know, okay, that was a pretty good book. I'm right. moving on. Right. You listen to enough of them, you start to find out they're all, a lot of them are repeating themselves. Right, they're all just talking about the same thing over and over again. They're all going to reference Daniel Conovin's prospect theory. They're all going to reference the prisoner's dilemma. They just do it over and over again, and then you get an idea of, oh, well, here's the five things I really need to know in psychology. That's that's, awesome. that's my advice on how to listen to a book. That's awesome. Okay, I got to get to five questions for firefighters. Running out of time, I want to try and keep it here. So, five questions for firefighters. We touched on number one. You can rehash it a little bit. What is the number one issue? Facing the modern fire service. Mission creep. Mission creep and the symptom is call volume. Yep. And uh, we, we talked about this. This is an incredibly unpopular answer. People cringe when I say it because we have wrapped ourselves up into a way of charging for EMS and it creates a form of moral hazard. Um, and I, I understand that it funds most of our fire departments. Um, but that mission creep is eating us alive and we are not able to train, at least in, in an agency that is busy as mine, we're not able to train or educate our people at the level that we used to because that thing is cannibalizing us. Okay, excellent. Uh, what, number two, question two, five questions for firefighters. What is the thing you are most excited about for the future of firefighting? The next generation. Uh, I am excited that they are going to Educate themselves. Um, and the idea that I was well-trained. Now, I got a between education and training. Training is robust, meaning it resists change. I can still throw a 24-foot wooden straight-side ladder, even though they don't exist anymore, right? Right. Being in my memory. Um, and training is awesome because when you are in the heat of battle, it needs to be there, and it comes back. But education is actually resilient. It's an entirely different thing. It actually accepts change and welcomes change, which you have to have a balance between. The environment around you is changing. So in the fire, you need to be robust. You need to be well-trained. But when you're in administration and you are looking out into the future, you need to be educated and you need to see what's happening ahead of you so you can pivot with it and not be resilient or not be, sorry, you know, reluctant and stubborn about what we're going to do, except the fact that this is the reality of the new world. So I'm, I'm excited that the generation uh, behind me is uh, coming out much more educated. Nice. Best rank position to be in in the fire service? Depends on the phase of your life. Okay. I mean, if you want to kick ass, then the firefighter is it. If you want to enjoy life, then the engineer is it. Boy, I was an engineer from uh, 04 to 07 on a truck. Whew. Uh, but if you want to affect change, the captain's the spot, right? If you want to influence, if you, if you want to stop whining about the problems and actually fix them, the captain's the spot. You now have the influence to groom the people below you, right? Yes. And that is direct one-on-one. -on -one. The agency goes nowhere without good captains, awesome. right? They are the meat and the bone. When you want to become the caregiver to the caregiver, then the BC is the spot. When you accept the fact that, okay, I now love these firefighters so much that I am now going to work for them, then the BC is it. So it depends on the phase of your life. I've had the fortunate opportunity to live through uh, each of them. And I've enjoyed all of them. And I would not want to miss kicking ass and taking names. Right. Captain can be hard work, but it's rewarding. Um, and the BC is a lot of hard work. But once again, if you're making positive change, it's rewarding. I got to say that much like your article, so I'm not surprised, uh, that was the most thorough answer I've ever gotten to that question number three. So... Uh, and cited and, and reason for each one. So thank you for that. Number four, best advice you have ever received? It was take every promotional exam available to you and not for the reason that you would think. It okay. wasn't to promote. Um, my father's best friend gave me this advice as a brand new firefighter. It was to learn and push myself. And um, I candidly did not have any desire to promote. 
but I was always curious and I wanted to learn. And the promotional process scared me so much that it forced me to learn and it pushed me out of my comfort zone. And I'm gonna tell you, the magic happens out here, outside of your comfort zone. Oh, yeah. You gotta push yourself out. And that was a simple piece of advice that I didn't understand until 20 years later, uh, but I did. And it, honestly, if you don't promote to lieutenant or captain, and it doesn't matter. If you take the test, you're gonna be a much better firefighter. Going back, you're gonna be, you, you are going to see the forest for the trees a little bit more, right? And that was that was a, the simplest guiding path that, uh, that really let me grow. It wasn't anything about rank or, or promotion. It was about personal growth. That's awesome. Heavy fire. Okay, question five. <clears throat> Heavy fire, tenable space. Would you rather be assigned to the nozzle or first in on VES? Nozzle. Nozzle. Every time. Every time? Every time. <laughs> um, that nozzle is my resiliency. That is my ro <laughs> robustness. That is my way out. And that is my way to solve the problem. Um, because you put the fire out, problem goes away. I like yeah. the answer. I almost I had to get rid of the fifth question because everybody, like for the first five times I asked it, everybody was first in the window on the VES, first in the window, first in the window. So I was like, man, everybody's just gonna, but late, last three have, have taken the nozzle. So now it's actually, it's making a comeback. So the question will stay. Um, I wonder how many of those have actually VES on a real fire. That's a and I'm not being critical at all. I will say my first experience VESing on a real fire went nothing like it was supposed to. I mean, the concept was so simple. Take the window, see the door, take the window, belly through the window, close the door, search the room, find the victim, come out. It went nothing like that. I saw the door, the room was clean. There was a nozzle at the front door. They couldn't get in because it was too much heat. I took the window, that room went black instantly. I was an aggressive young firefighter, I was probably 26 years old. In my mind, I was a badass. Right, right. right. Up against the fire, you're not much. <laughs> I bellied my way into that building saying, all right, well, this is easy. All I got to do is find a wall and close the door. Well, I landed on a bed. I went from the bed to the dresser to a pile of clothes to another pile of clothes. <laughs> and then I ran into a toilet. So I somehow worked my way into the, in bathroom, the bathroom and realized I hadn't even found the floor yet. And I had trained on this so much. I was not a slacker. I would took my job very seriously. And I realized, well, this sucks. Um, and then I heard the chainsaw run above my head and the vent pop and the nozzle go past the door as it went and put the fire out and thought to myself, well, I'm glad someone else here is on the nozzle. <laughs> <laughs> because if I had found the victim, I wouldn't know what to do with them. I couldn't get myself out of there. Right um, so uh, I, I think VES, like many things in the fire service, uh, I like the idea that the gap between theory and practicality sometimes sneaks up on you and the environments we create in training are fantastic sometimes that gap you have to be aware of it um and that's that's why i asked i wonder how many have i've done it since then uh, uh as a truck crew i wonder how many people have really done it in real life it, it does not work the way i expected it to or certainly didn't work the way we did training <laughs> so, Right on. Well, Mr. Sailors, Chief, thank you for coming on the Weekly Scrap, number 36. It has been a pleasure. I hope you will come back so I can pick your brain on, on your articles and I can I can grab another five or six and we can do it some more. Um, and so I'll, I'll reach out to you again. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I appreciate the passion and the attention to meticulous detail you put into your work. And so thank you for coming on. One last thing before I go. Absolutely. I'd like to find the word passion for you. It's the balance between love and anger. Love and anger. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I love the fire service. I love the firefighters who do the job. And sometimes I get angry about what happens to them. I like and that. That's what drives me. That's, that's the catalyst. That, that's passion. One thing I want to put in before I before I cut off is, uh, is there any way to get a hold of you or get in touch with you if people wanted to contact you for any reason? What's the best way to do so? Uh, you can seek me out on Facebook or LinkedIn. Um, I don't mind giving out my email to other firefighters. Okay. 
So um, yeah, if you have a way to put that link up, you have my email, that's my personal email. If people have questions, absolutely welcome. Excellent. Well, thank you, Chief. It has been a pleasure. I, I love the scrap. Number 36, uh, for everybody watching, thank you. I uh, hope you do it again, like I said, and uh, I hope the tone stays silent for everyone. Unless it's burning, be safe out there. Thanks for listening to the Weekly Scrap. Please subscribe and please share. We'll see you at the next episode.